Hello and welcome to How's the Water, an occasional podcast about books in which during each episode we'll talk about a well-known or not so well-known piece of literature. My name is Gary and today I'm joined by my friend and companion whose name is... Sienna. Hello everybody. Hello. Hello everybody. I, d- I forgot to say that. How are you today, Sienna? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you for asking. So today we're going to be talking about Charlotte Bronte's most famous novel, Jane Eyre. We're going to break down different parts of the book, the characters, ask each other questions, and just have a good time surrendering to the total nerdiness of what we've decided to do here. Yes, that's true. And I am a massive nerd, so I'm going to really enjoy that aspect of it. There's no need to agree with me there at all with that. Okay, what I should say before we really get going is that we tried to make today's podcast suitable for people who haven't read Jane uh, yet, but want a little introduction, but don't mind a number of spoilers uh, throughout the podcast. And those of you that have read it and want to hear a little bit of discussion about it, maybe as a reminder or a review or thinking about reading it again. Yeah, shall we start with Charlotte Bronte, the author of Jane Eyre? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Shall we just go straight into the biography of her? We shall. All right. So born on the 21st of April, no, April 21st, 1816 in Thornton in the West Riding of Yorkshire. Charlotte Bronte was the third of six children of Maria and Patrick Bronte, who was an Anglican clergyman. She grew up in the village of Haworth in West Yorkshire, which is quite close to where we are. It is indeed. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Charlotte and her sisters, Emily and Anne, as well as their brother Branwell, began creating their own fictional worlds called Angria and Gondol, complete with imaginary kingdoms and inhabitants about which they wrote stories, poems, and articles. They must have been fun, fun kids. They, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if I'd have wanted to hang around with them oh, yeah. when I was that age. No, yeah. uh, they did keep to themselves quite a bit, I think. They did. They yeah. were a little bit they kinky, didn't. weren't they? Totally. Between mm. 1839 and 1841, Charlotte worked as a governess in Yorkshire, work that she did not care for as she felt that she was mistreated by the families for whom she worked. After a spell of teaching in Brussels, an experience which served as an inspiration for her two novels, The Professor and Villette, in 1842, she returned to Haworth, and in 1844, she tried to open a boarding school with her sisters, but this plan was abandoned later in the same year. Upon discovering Emily's cache of private poems. Cache. Is that cache? Yeah. Thank you for correcting me in front of the world. Uh, That's okay. Thanks. Charlotte encouraged her sisters to write a book of poetry with her, which was a total failure, only selling two copies. Not to be discouraged, they tried their hand at writing novels, while Emily and Anne found success with Wuthering Heights and Agnes Grey, respectively. Charlotte's first novel, The Professor, did not find a publisher at all. Actually, I read that she tried to publish it nine times, and it got rejected nine times. I know. Poor Charlotte. It all came good in the end for her. Exactly. exactly, As you will see, Jane Eyre was published in 1847. Try, try again. Under the pseudonym Currabelle. And it was an immediate commercial and critical success. So thank you, Wikipedia. And thank you, Gary, for writing that. You're uh, you're welcome. No problem. (laughs) Wikipedia wrote. (laughs) I deserve a lot of credit. Yeah. 
now let's get into Jane Eyre, the Cinderella story of an independent woman, which was written so well that it was mistakenly considered to be an autobiography for a little bit, and thus so scandalous that young women under 30 were told not to bother reading it. So uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to go into the plot of the novel um, and talk a little bit about some of the characters as they crop up. We're not going to uh, discuss Jane too much at this point because the whole novel is from her perspective. So we'll kind of be covering her as we discuss the novel, but we'll certainly be talking about some of the people that she encounters on her journey. So when the story begins, Jane, who is an orphan, is being brought up by the family of her maternal aunt, who have adopted her because of the dying wish of Jane's uncle. However, her life with her aunt and her cousins is extremely unhappy. She's bullied and she's abused physically, particularly by her cousin John Woodweed, and neglected by her aunt, who ignores John's treatment of her and makes it clear to Jane that she considers her to be a burden. Mrs. Reed is resentful of Jane's presence in the house and she doesn't treat her as one of the family, even though she promised her late husband, Mr. Reed, that she would. Right. Eventually, Jane is shipped off to Lowood, a school for orphaned girls. Here, she's not treated much better than she'd been by her aunt's family. Under the thrifty stewardship of Mr. Brocklehurst, the girls at the school are deprived of proper heating and food, clothing. I think they get their hair cut, cut off quite a bit he, if they yes. have long hair he cuts it off yeah yeah he's not nice no so very demeaning yeah. things that they're subjected to yeah yeah however jane does make one friend at the institution helen burns who through her stoicism and forgiving attitude in the face of the harsh treatment she receives there in particular has a substantial influence on jane so helen burns who as sienna said is one of jane's Schoolmates at the school is a kind, compassionate, and devoutly re religious girl who is a little older than Jane. She is the student that one teacher, Mrs. Scratchard, I think I'm pronouncing that right, mm. seems to pick on and humiliate the most. And she's also the least deserving of this treatment. Um, she's full of tolerance and she is willing to learn from her faults. She often puts herself in the shoes of her abuser. She's very, very empathetic and tries to see things from their point of view. While Jane wishes that Helen would stand up for herself more, uh, she also admires her for bearing her unjust punishment and her unjust treatments with dignity, a great deal of dignity. Yeah. At the school, a typhus epidemic strikes, killing more than 80 of the children, including Helen Burns. No. Who dies, oh yeah, I'm afraid so, yeah. Who dies in Jane's arms, tragically. However, the epidemic does have an upside as it leads to the discovery of Mr. Brocklehurst's mistreatment of the girls and therefore to improvements in the life in the school. Mm -hmm. um, the novel then skips forward a number of years, a number, I think, of quite happy years. Jane mm -hmm. becomes a teacher at Lowood, but after the novel has jumped forward, she's become bored of her life there and has decided to pursue a new life. Uh, somewhere else and to see a little bit more of the world so she advertises her services as a governess and that really is the end of I would say the first part of the novel. Yes it is for sure. Um, a note about Helen Burns she's based on Maria Bronte who yep. is the oldest child of uh, Patrick and Maria Bronte. Yeah the older sister. Yes Charlotte. it's yeah. the the older sister she died of tuberculosis at age 11. Um, mm -hmm. And she was like Helen Burns, considered wise beyond her years, a keen intellectual, 
their father said that he could have deep conversations with her when she was as young as four. Um, yes. a pretty exceptional kid. Uh, Lowood yeah. School was also based on the clergy daughter school at Cowan Bridge in Lancashire, also down the road from us, Lancashire. Charlotte, also, she always claimed that the poor conditions of the school were responsible for the deaths of Maria and also their sister Elizabeth. They had a, another sister um, and they both died in 1825. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, the way the school is depicted in, in the novel is horrendous mm-hmm. and his treatment of the girls. It kind of amounts to some kind of abuse, certainly neglect, but. It's sort of a stinginess that's disguised as Christianity. So it has very, very, very high expectations of how the girl should behave. So I think Jane is punished at one point. Does she drop a book and then mm-hmm. is made to stand on a chair or mm-hmm. something? I might be remembering that from the film rather than the book all day. And no one's allowed to speak to her. Yeah. yeah. And they're, so they're it's, not fed properly, are they? No. So it's, there's a hypocrisy going on. It's a very hypocritical side of Christianity that is shown in part one yeah yeah apart from as we sort of talked about the character of helen who is christian as well but kind of has a different kind of christianity is very forgiving Mm -hmm. very empathetic and kind of feels that her um, her reward will come in heaven what she dies very peacefully and very happy yeah 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 yeah. yep so so gary what do we think of jane and the things she's gone through and seen at such a young age um well the horrendous i mean what she sort of suffers at the the reeds is horrible the way her like cousin bullies her and treats her and is very very manipulative of his mother isn't he mm-hmm. is awful and then all these kind of faults are, are passed onto her so she she's seen as being responsible for all the disruption in the house yep. and she's not she yep. seems to be quite a peaceful uh, little girl who wants time to herself with her books kind of something that we can see throughout the novel she, she becomes an adult she's not particularly i didn't feel anyway particularly kind of peaceful or tranquil she kind of responds to the way that she's treated she's quite kind of sparky doesn't she she fights with mm-hmm. her cousin um, she argues a little bit in the school i think yeah, she, and she encourages yeah and she encourages helen to kind of argue and stick up for herself as well but really i think helen has a lot more influence on jane than jane has definitely yeah yeah um but helen's whole point is that um you know you need to see the other side of it and maybe you should focus more on yourself and if someone's pointing out a flaw in you then maybe that's a good thing and you should work on it Um, yes yeah i think that helen is a very very key figure on jane because i think that um the adult jane who we we come to meet at the end of this part and, and obviously throughout the rest of the novel I, I feel is quite a changed character from the child Jane. She's much more reserved. She's much more of an internal kind of character. She's watching and observing, but not necessarily reacting to the world around her so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously she does some major things throughout the novel, but only I think in quite extreme kind of circumstances. Yeah, very true. Shall, at that point, I think, are we ready for part two? We are, yeah, I think so. All right, okay. So, uh, moving on to part two now. Through advertising herself, uh, Jane secures a role as a governess at Thornfield Hall. Mm. Um, there's a lot of mystery around this position. She doesn't really know who she's working for who, or who owns Thornfield Hall. When she arrives there, she discovers from Miss Fairfax, who is the housekeeper, um, initially, Jane thinks uh, Miss Fairfax is the owner of Thornfield Hall, but she's only the house, 
keeper. She discovers from her that she's going to be teaching Adele Varon, a young French girl who is the ward. <laughs> Varon? Excuse me, sorry. Varon? You don't pronounce the S, do you? At I, the end I French. don't remember. She discovers that she's going to be teaching Adele Varon. <laughs> I'm saying... I'm okay. leaving a little pause for you there to laugh. Okay, Adele Varon, a young French girl who is the ward of Mr. Rochester who is away traveling. Mr. Rochester is away okay. traveling, not, not yeah. the French girl. Yeah, she's there <laughs> when she shows up. Yeah, yes. She is definitely there. And uh, yeah. I think, Sienna, you're going to tell us a little bit more about Adele Varon. I, I uh, will. Moment, <laughs> I will. I will say first, though, for any youth that are listening to us who bother to listen to this, don't apply to a job if you don't know anything about the job. If you don't know who you're going to work for <laughs> and they give you no information other than the money and when you start, don't, please don't. All right, let's talk uh, about Adele then. Please say her surname during this part. Adele Veron. Veron. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah. So Adele is a, she's a little, obviously a little French girl of uh, seven or eight years old. She was abandoned by her mother, who was a gold-digging French dancer and singer, um, with whom Mr. Rochester had a relationship. She displays behaviors that Jane describes as typically French. She values extravagant fashion and presence. She sings romantic and dramatic songs and poems. She longs to be beautiful, that which is every French person I've ever met. Exactly. I, I was going to put in there and say, is, is, that, is that how you see French people? No, that's not how I see French people. That's how Charlotte Bronte saw French people. I have a feeling Charlotte Bronte was not the biggest fan of foreigners, but we'll get, we'll get into that later. I have uh, we may well do when we, meet, when we meet the lady in the attic. Yes. Mm -hmm. you've, got, you've got some... Uh, some things saved up for that. I do. Now, we, while okay. Mr. Rochester is probably not Adele's father, he's taken it upon himself to look after her as a legal guardian. Anyway, it's just nice of him. It is very nice of him, yeah. And we haven't actually met Mr. Rochester yet, but we're no, about to. Because, we are. Um, sometimes, sometime later, Jane is out walking. Uh, when a horseman passes her, the horse slips on the ice and the rider falls. Um, the fallen horseman is very rude to Jane and very abrupt. Nevertheless, she assists him in remounting his horse. And when she returns to Thornfield Hall, she learns to her surprise that the rider was Mr. Rochester, her boss. Yeah. So, Mr. Rochester, whose full name is Edward Fairfax Rochester, Ugh. is the prominent, excuse me, sorry. Fairfax. Go on, I'm it, sorry. Don't you laugh at our nice English names. <laughs> Keep that to yourself. Edward Fairfax Rochester is the prominent male figure in the novel. He's the master of Thornfield Hall, where Jane comes to work after she has left her teaching job at Lowood. He's part of the landed gentry. He's earning income from his estate, but he's also an archetype of the Byronic hero, uh, both in terms of the way he looks and his personality, as he's described as having stern features, a craggy face and a heavy brow. And personality-wise, he's proud, stern, mysterious. He's quite charismatic as well, I would say in some ways. As time goes on, uh, while Jane's living at Thornfield Hall, there are some weird goings on there. She hears strange female laughter. A guest is mysterious, mysteriously stabbed in the middle of the night. Even worse, someone sets fire to Mr. Rochester's bed while he sleeps in it. Ew! Okay. Ew. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, you wouldn't like that then? Uh, yeah, no. No, me neither. I don't think many people would. Um, Jane attributes many of these strange occurrences to Grace Poole, 
who is a servant who is living in the attic. Oh. And I think uh, Grace Poole, who I believe is your favourite character in the book. I'm obsessed with Grace reason. Poole. I love her so much. <laughs> I know. Yes. I know. Uh, well, please, please, please explain to us the enigma of Grace Poole. Okay. So, yeah, Grace Poole, she's a mystery to Jane because there doesn't seem to be a reason for her to be living at Thordfield. Any obvious reason, anyway, for her to be living there. So all she knows is that Grace is a handsomely paid servant. She makes as much as Jane does. She makes 30 pounds a year, which is a mm -hmm. lot of money in 1847 money. Uh, and she keeps to herself in the attic area of the house. And that's it. So she doesn't have any real job that Jane knows of. For all she knows, Grace is the sole reason for much of the weirdness and the calamity that goes on there. The laughter, the fire, the stabbing of Mr. Mason, who was the guest in the house. Uh, when Jane does directly encounter Grace and talk to her, Grace is very self-composed. She's well-spoken and her expression is unreadable. So Jane is anxious at the thought of a murderess with a hidden madness roaming free under the guise of a normal, rational person, which we will get into later. Of course, of course. That's the big twist. <laughs> it's about to come. Okay, so remember the fire in the bed? Oh, you know? How could I forget? Uh, Mr. Rochester does not come home to find his bed on fire. He's sleeping in his bed uh, while it is set on fire. Uh, slightly different thing. Even worse, you could argue. However, Jane saves him from this fire. And really, I would say at this point, she starts to fall in love with him. She, she describes these feelings to the reader quite sort of clearly. However, uh, she also bears these feelings quietly to the other characters in the book. I mean, um, she does not really believe that her love could be reciprocated because Mr. Rochester is her employer, paying her £30 a year, Sienna said, mm -hmm. and he's part of the gentry, which means there's a large difference in their social status. Yeah. Moreover, it seems that he's going to become engaged to Blanche Ingram, who is a beautiful and talented woman who is from the same social sphere as him. Mm -hmm. However, uh, one night, Jane loses her composure and confesses her love to Mr. Rochester. And he reveals to her that he loves her too. And they become engaged. Mm -hmm. oh, During this and time, then the story so, ends and it's all happy and that's it. Uh, that's it. That's the end of the book. Mm. Yeah, you can see why it's such a classic. Yeah. So many mysteries unresolved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that is no. not the end of the book, Sienna. That is not how things come to a conclusion, what unfortunately. What happened? Would you like me to tell you? I would. So... Jane is happy for the first time, really, during her engagement. However, on her wedding day, this all unravels when she discovers that Mr. Rochester is, in fact, already married. <gasps> What's more, he keeps his wife, Bertha Mason, chained up in the attic. Uh. It's her that's been responsible for all the strange occurrences in the house. No. Oh, I'd be mad. That's Would you? That's <laughs> if you were engaged to someone and you found out that they had they were already married and their wife was living upstairs in the attic chained to a post. Yeah, I'd have questions and be pretty mad. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that would be understandable. You you know, you'd want to know more, wouldn't you? Totally. Yeah, you would. Yeah. Uh Sienna, I believe you're gonna tell us a little bit more about Bertha Mason. So please, without further ado, go ahead. Right. Bertha is from Jamaica. She's of Creole heritage. She's also from a wealthy family there and is described as having been attractive in her youth when Mr. Rochester um, went there to marry her. But 
Uh, after years of insanity, in terms of her personality, appearance, and her behavior, she's described in animalistic terms as wild. She has red eyes and long, unkempt hair and is savage, violent, and ultimately, um, she's murderous. Uh, Mr. Rochester had no other option but to keep her locked away to avoid harm befalling himself and others. He is still a dick, though. Okay, a little bit of opinion <laughs> creeping in there. <laughs> Modern language as well. We just um, yeah, Charlotte just wrote that. I didn't write that. It's Charlotte <laughs> wrote that. After Mister Rochester confesses all of this to Jane, he still tries to persuade her to come to France with him, basically as a living lover arrangement. But mm. Jane, who is a devout Christian, remember mm. Helen Burns earlier on, refuses and decides that she must run away from Cornfield. Yes. In the of the night. Good. Okay. What she should have done. And really, we've, that's the key part. That's the, the middle point of the novel, I would say. So I have some, uh, I have a question for you, Sienna. Mm -hmm. of, of all the stuff that we've read about so far and all the stuff we've heard about, why are you so obsessed with Grace Poole? And I'm just going to sit back, put my feet up and, you know, listen to your answer. Let me rant. Mm -hmm. okay. All right. Okay. So basically, why am I so obsessed with Grace Poole? So she's Bertha Mason's keeper and her guardian. That's her job. She gets paid 30 pounds a year to be held up in a room with this mentally ill person day after day, 23 out of 24 hours every single day. So Grace Poole, remember I said that Jane can talk to her and Grace is just very composed unreadable in expression. So Grace isn't crazy. She doesn't harbor any murderous tendencies. She's just the kind of person who can look after a severely mentally ill person day in and day out, every day and yeah. night, basically. Now the job clearly gets to her, however, as she occasionally uh, nips into the bottle of gin to ease the stress and the boredom. I mean- You would. Exactly. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. We all, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we make mistakes. It's, <laughs> we all have our vices. But uh, that's when her restraint tying game falls a little flat. And uh, Bertha Mason <laughs> escapes into the main house and does whatever she wants. So she runs around laughing. She sets fire to beds and stabs people. Yeah. yeah. Now, the thing is, um, why does Charlotte Bronte keep focusing on Jane trying to read signs of madness in Grace's face? This happens all the time. So in 1847... Um, people reading it were familiar with the idea of physiognomy. So that's judging whether a person could be mentally ill or be a criminal just by their facial features. And that was a common and accepted thing that the police did to profile criminals and to convict people, actually, which is crazy that you could just be convicted of a crime for having a weird shaped head. Yes, it is strange, isn't oh. it? But uh, yeah, have we moved on that much considering what's going on in the world at the moment? Yeah, you're, you're right. No, it's, it's very relevant to this. Um, it's, since yeah, discredited, yeah, no, it's, so too. it's discredited now as a pseudoscience with racist connotations because what a convenience. The uh, white European features were considered good. Foreign ethnic features were signs of evil or an inherent criminal personality. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, but in 1847, this was a very common practice, and that's exact. It shows up in all of these Victorian novels. It actually shows up a bit in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall and Wuthering Heights as well. They yeah. mention physiognomy and looking at people to try and judge what their um, character is like based on how they look. So, it's pretty cool historical context for you there. You're welcome. Yeah, good. Thank you for that. I 
genuinely didn't know that. I mean, I knew the, the basics, but I didn't know it. And I, I kind of, excuse me, I just kind of passed over it in the book as well. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Well, Grace Gary, Paul? I have a question. Oh, okay. About we're Rochester. About Mr. Rochester. Rochester was, he's kind of forced into marrying Bertha Mason. Well, he was forced into marrying Bertha Mason by his father, basically. Yeah. Considering all that, was Rochester more sinned against than sinner, do you think? Um, I think we know your opinion about this, considering what you said during your uh, description of Bertha. <laughs> um, I'm, I don't know about that, really. I mean, I don't think that his, the way that he's treated as a youth is pretty bad. You know, he's strongly encouraged by his father. Um, someone you should be able to trust, I think, to, to want the best for you. And he's manipulated it into marrying this woman who his father knows is unsuitable and, and has a kind of congenital madness, which is only going to get worse over time. Yeah. So I think he's forced to marry her for kind of family reasons, for financial reasons, because the unification of the two families kind of benefits uh, Mr. Rochester's family as mm -hmm. well. So I do feel quite sorry for him at this point. However, I would not say that he is more sinned against than sinning. No, I mean, he has his wife in the house. She's chained up. He pays someone, uh, your favourite character, Bertha Mason. Not Bertha Mason. Very sorry. Grace, Grace Paul. Paul to, yep. I'm very, very sorry. You're fine. You're still there, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, he pays her money to kind of look after him. And he does kind of lead still quite a nice life. You know, he's often off traveling, gallivanting around. Yeah. He, he has a kind of affair with the mother of Adele Baron, who um, the mother doesn't treat him very well and runs off. And so he does take care of the daughter, and that's very good of him. Because um, it, it's, it's sort of implied that he's not the fa her father, is it? It's never really quite cleared up in the book, but it, you're not really led to believe that he's the father of Adele. But he no. does really look after her. Yeah. even though I think he's, he doesn't seem that keen on her or to like children all that much. Yeah. Um, so he does, he does have a good side. And the, yeah, the way he treats Jane is a little bit mixed as well, beyond <laughs> even. It's kind um, of a problem. Buddy. Yeah, it's, you know, maybe we're reading this through 21st century eyes, but I don't know. I mean, he... Beyond having beyond having a wife trained up in the attic, he flirts quite heavily with uh, Blanche Ingram. Blanche Ingram. Sorry well, about that. Uh, yeah. yes, go on. I think. Um, sorry, excuse me for. Can I be polite again and apologize for interrupting you? I'm so sorry. You can. Yes, please go ahead. I think. Elucidate. At the time in 1847, I don't think the problem people would have had with this would be that he keeps his insane wife chained in the attic as fucked as that, uh, as that is. I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem would have been more that he, he lies to her and he tries to, is it bigamy? Where you, bigamy is when you have two wives. Or yeah, two wives. so that's more what I think people would have been really upset about um, when they read this. Yeah. Is that like, he's trying to marry her and he's already married to somebody else. Uh, which is still horrible, mm. but I think now being in the century that we're in, the year that we're in, we know mm. that you know, keeping an insane person chained in your attic is not cool either. 
no, it's not. It's not good treatment, is it? Oh. So, um, yeah, and there's that. There's the bit where he dresses up as a kind of fortune teller uh-huh. to try and sort of get Jane to confess her feelings to him. Yeah, it, he's living drag as a fortune teller. Just... And the power dynamic in their relationship is kind of a little bit off because he's the boss and she is working for him in his house. And all right, that yeah. can happen. That, that's not necessarily a problem. But then he's very manipulative on top mm-hmm. of that as well. He's older. Um, he's too, he's too old. not too old for her, but he's so much older than her. He's almost 20 years older than her. Or That's true as well. About twenty years older than her, it's too much. You don't approve. I think there's a, a significant power problem with that when yes. you have someone who's so young and someone who's older. If she was thirty-eight and he was fifty-eight, did math very quickly there. Yeah, well done. Congratulations. Yeah, um, that's not so big of a deal. But she's eighteen mm. and he's like thirty-seven. Yeah. To me, that's and yeah, she, I, like never had any relationship with men ever in her life. I think it's a bit. Yeah, yeah no, no, there's nothing as there before, before mm-hmm. Mr. Rochester. Yeah, so no, I don't think he's more sinned against than, than sinning. Oh, good answer. I don't know. It's it, Thank you. Am I, am I allowed to stay around for part three? You, yes, you can. We're going to get yeah. into part three now. If you're, yeah, if you're up so for I, it, are you up for it? I, I'm definitely up for it. Yeah, so yeah, I'm ready. Here we go. So to recap, the wedding is called off. Mr. Rochester, he's desperate to be with Jane and suggests that she live with him in France, making her his mistress. But Jane holds herself to a higher moral standard and refuses, even though she's still very much in love with him. She decides to leave the next day and spends all the money she has hiring a coach that will take her as far away from Thornfield as possible. She becomes penniless and destitute after forgetting her personal belongings and the coach that dropped her off. Uh, you can tell she's never really traveled before. You got to gather all your stuff. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't prepare herself that well for the journey. No, she? no. Consequently, she's forced to sleep outside and beg for food and is near death and starvation after just one day. And tell me, Gary, how this makes any sense, please. People, uh, well, about uh, the, you breathed the on people wrong back then and they were in bed for a month. <laughs> how did she she's not got food for a day and she's like oh my god how yeah i think we kind of have this problem a lot in some of the bronte novels that some of the women do seem to get ill very quickly and take to their beds and the they, men you know. too though it's like nobody can handle just a slight incon like <laughs> anyway i know it's there's exposure and all kinds of things that you know malnutrition that make yeah. people a lot more fragile you know, yeah, I, I, I guess so. Yeah, but she seems quite a strong person up until this point. Yeah, and it is very, very quickly she seems to be deteriorating. <laughs> deteriorating, nearly dying on a hillside, doesn't she? Yep. But tell us, tell us, Sienna, unfortunately, what, what happens to her? She doesn't die, does she? Okay, no, she doesn't die. Um, she actually, she's very close to death, but she comes to the home of the Rivers family, where there are two sisters who live there with their brother, Sinjin, St. John Sinjin. And they take pity on Jane and nurse her back to health. Gary, can you tell us a little bit about Sinjin Rivers, please? I can. Very kindly, you've left me with the, the profile of someone with another name that's difficult to pronounce. <laughs> I feel that maybe this has been done on purpose. You'll be fine. So his name is spelt St. John Rivers, but I believe we say Sinjin Rivers. So mm. I'm going to say that. So Sinjin Rivers is an evangelicist. Evangelical, <laughs> my favorite word. Is evangelic- it? It's not my favorite word. Evangelist. Uh, evangelist. Okay. 
Oh, why can't I say that? Word? St. John, St. John Rivers is an evangelist minister. Good. With ambitions to become a missionary. When we first meet him, he seems to be very, very similar to Rochester or even more altruistic than him. He's intelligent, brooding, deep, and devoted to his profession, to God, and to helping others. He's still in his 20s, but he seems to be much, much older than this, I think. And we're led to believe that he's at least a little bit good-looking, if Mm. not a little bit rough around the edges, because he has a love interest in the local area in the form of a beautiful girl from an affluent family, but he doesn't seem all that interested in her. He's uh, a kind of foil in a novel to Rochester. So where Rochester can be charming, yet wrathful and passionate, St. John is cold, repressed and despotic, which comes into play later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So the family's kindness, uh, after they nurse her back to health, she lands a job as a teacher in a local village and she develops a bond with all three siblings while adjusting to a more independent life. But she's careful to keep her identity concealed in case Mr. Rochester is trying to look for her. Uh, However, Sinjin is perceptive and he uncovers the truth about who she is. And in doing so, he reveals a letter that her uncle, John Eyre in Madeira, everyone's got a long lost uncle somewhere. James (laughs) is living in Madeira, uh, doing something with wine, I think, something like that. Anyway, yeah, he died. And he left her 20,000 pounds. Uh, what's that in today money? Do you remember? Uh, it's about 1. Is it 1.7 million, yeah, I think. Like I did know. I did look it up. Um, but it's something like that, I think. It's, it's a lot. Anyway, yeah. she's basically a, mil- a millionaire now in today's terms. Yeah. So she's, now she's got that money under her belt. He delivers the shocking news that... What? Please tell us... John Eyre was his uncle, too. Oh, wow. Oh, I know. Making the river her cousins. She has a family. She happened to almost die on the doorstep of the only family she has in the world. Yeah. Mm. Not convenient at all. At all. (laughs) It's Uh, a bit of a coincidence. Yeah. Jane is so overjoyed that she splits her newfound fortune between the four of them. Okay. Uh, Mm -hmm. Now, later in the year, Sinjin, he's... Um, already decided he wants to pursue life as a missionary but in India, but he's really like, I'm going like next year. So he yep. proposes marriage to Jane so he can take her with him. Um, he's clear he doesn't find her beautiful and he doesn't even love her. He's very upfront about that. But he believes that she's best suited to a life of religious service. And at first Jane refuses this, but heartbroken over Mr. Rochester, she eventually comes to consider his proposal until one night she hears Mr. Rochester calling her name like Jane, Jane from the heavens. Yeah. And realizes she can't be apart from him any longer wife or no wife. Yeah. I kind of think she should have gone to Madeira. The whole, at this part of the novel, I kept thinking, oh, go to Madeira, go to Madeira. I've been, I've been to Madeira. It's, it's <laughs> lovely. That's, that's what I would have done. It's nice there. It's very, very nice there. Can yeah. you imagine weather, Jane Eyre on the beach nice in Madeira, like in her black dress? <laughs> <laughs> Winston, well, Ch- Winston Churchill used to go there and paint, so I think she would have could. Well, What's she good did. enough for Winston Churchill is good enough for her. She didn't do that. Well, no, she didn't. Tell us what she did instead, Sienna. So Jane is now a wealthy woman. She returns to Thornfield to find it in charred ruins. 
which is a bummer. Oh, okay. A bit of a development there. Yeah. yeah. Her, house, her old house has burned down. Right. She went back to try and find Mr. Rochester and reconcile with him, but um, it's burned down. She learns that Bertha Mason escaped from her attic room and set fire to the house and committed suicide by jumping from the roof. In attempts to rescue her and other people in the house, Mr. Rochester was seriously injured, losing a hand and his eyesight. He went blind doing that. Jane travels to see him and they reaffirm their love for each other with Rochester admitting he heard her calling his name one night, the very same night she heard him calling her name over the moors, seeming to confirm they have a convenient little telepathic connection. True love. Yes, it is. It is. It is yes. true love, definitely. They marry and have been married for 10 years by the story's end, having had a son together. And this isn't convenient at all. Miraculously, Rochester, he's even regained sight in one eye. And that is, indeed. How, that is how it ends. That's the end of Jane Eyre. That's the end of the novel, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Very happy ending. Yes. How convenient is this last half? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very convenient. I, I enjoyed reading um, this part of the novel a lot. Uh, I really enjoyed what um, I'm really kind of, I don't know. Yeah, enjoyed a lot um, reading what happens to her. But it is quite fortuitous isn't it i mean first she becomes basically a millionaireess so she's independently wealthy that oh. kind of lifts her up to the same social strata as mr rochester yep. um so she doesn't have to worry about that difference anymore she finds out that the people who have been looking after her very kindly in some ways are her cousins and she's nice though she splits the money with them uh four ways you know, yep. um, with the three cousins and, and herself um very convenient as well that Bertha Mason has died and sort of died in such a dramatic way that we don't really have to feel sorry for her anymore. So she's tried to kill everybody by burning down the house and has yeah. jumped from the roof. Exactly. So she's out of the picture as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mr. Rochester, I mean, he's seriously injured. He's, he's lost a hand. He's lost Doing his Doing something very heroic, saving people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so he's kind of had the opportunity to uh, redeem himself from what's happened in the past, yes. but he's free from the shackles. But also, he's kind of slightly dependent now on Jane. I think as as they kind of um, yeah live out their lives together. I guess because you know he's kind of he's lost a hand. He can't see apart from obviously, as you said, some of his sight comes back. So yeah, a lot. There's a lot of things. A lot of things do fall into place for Jane. I have to say, yeah. Yeah. yeah, quite um, an enjoyable way, as I keep saying when you read it. But um, yeah, it's still quite convenient. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel about it. It's a mm -hmm. bit kind of like okay. The first half is, I think, it's a lot more storytelling, and the second half, the, yeah. you know, the, the the next part of it is a bit more um, like okay. Well, of course, this happened. Yeah. Yes. yeah, everything does get slightly too well sort of wrapped up, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, you know that could be a problem with the novel of the of the time, though. That maybe um, you know writers kind of felt kind of compelled to make sure there was a happy ending and that everything kind of falls into place for the character, rather than making them suffer. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, actually. Yeah. So I have a question about uh, Saint John River, Rivers. Mm -hmm. So um, I felt like we kind of passed over him quite quickly at the end of the book, but he's quite a significant character in the yeah. novel. Um, yeah. So, how do you feel about him, Sienna? Do you feel that he's a character to be respected, 
Uh, do you pity him, feel sorry for him, or are you revulsed by him, or kind of a combination of all those three feelings? Yeah, well, Charlotte Bronte ends the book with him. Mm, that's true, she and, does. Yeah, yeah. She's, he's the last person she mentions. Yeah, she mentions the, the last paragraph of the book um, details his life in India as a missionary, and it implies that he will die young, having carried on with his mission and committing to the life the way he always intended. Um, now, I suppose in terms of sticking to something you know is going to give you self-fulfillment, he is someone to be respected. However, you mentioned in the character description of him, he's cold, repressed, and despotic. He's so mm -hmm. that, yeah, exactly. Now, um, he's a difficult person for Jane to befriend at first anyway. So we all know a person like that, outwardly very polite, isn't very easy to get to know on a personal level. Um, are, you, are you talking about me? I'm not actually talking about <laughs> you. I don't think I'm talking about anybody in particular. Um, got very point, got very pointed. Well, about myself? About anybody. Have you ever known someone who's kind of polite to you, but you just cannot, it takes ages to, to be their friend? and get to know them. Have you ever met anyone like that? I, uh, yeah, yeah, I guess I have. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's quite a British thing, actually. Okay. <laughs> you're you like, Sienna, we're all yeah. like that here. <laughs> yeah, everybody is, yeah. We have right. to put the work in. We're not, we're not just friends after a week. Okay. Well, he's also very opportunistic. Um, he only starts really being friendly to Jane when she accepts his offer to become a teacher for local children of peasants and farmers. Mm -hmm. That's where she gets her teaching yeah. job. Yeah. Um, yeah. He exploits um, her willingness to please and belong. Um, yeah. That's something that he sees and kind of, um, uh, kind of picks up on very quickly. When Jane starts learning German with his sisters, he recognizes her diligence and dedication. He persuades her to abandon the hobby to help him learn. Mm -hmm. Um, Hindustani. That's true. Yeah, uh, yeah, he does that, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah that, that is what's going to help him when he goes to India for missionary work. And he literally says, uh, I want you to give up German and learn this for me. And she yeah. does. It. She, without complaint, she does it. And then he shoves more work on her. He withholds praise from her to see what she can handle. And she can handle a lot mentally. And he's very pleased with that. Yeah. When he proposes to her, he says, um, I want a wife I can influence efficiently and retain absolutely. That's a quote yeah. that he says from the book. Yeah. So he doesn't yeah. see her as an autonomous person. He sees her as someone who can help him fulfill a function that will further his career. He's not a great believer in equal rights, I don't think. Not equal <laughs> rights for women, anyway. No, yeah. I don't think he would have been for affirmative action or any of that stuff. <laughs> No, no, Into I'm that. not sure that he would have been. No, yeah, no. he says um, it's they will be married on paper only. There will be no physical passion between them ever. Jane wants to go to India with him as brother and sister, or even cousins, mm. because she comes to find out that they're cousins. So she's like, why can't we just go as family? And he is so set on the idea of marrying her that he persists in asking her over and over, and he is he sulks moodily between rejections. He's a stage five clinger, basically. He keeps, <laughs> oh, you don't want to marry me? Well, I'll just ask you again next week, and you promised me that you were going to marry me. And she says, no, I just said I'd think about it, but probably not. And he's like, okay, I'm yeah. going to London or Oxford, and in a month when I come back, you'll be ready to go, right? And he's, she's like, no, <laughs> and he just can't let it go. Yeah. And he's mean to her. And then he'll, um, he, 
uh, gives her the cold shoulder for a while sometimes as well and won't give her a kiss goodnight or anything. Uh, yeah, so he's, to me, he's both someone to be respected and someone to be revolved by completely. I don't feel bad for him at all. He's someone who really knows what he wants and to get it, he is capable of being not very nice and using people yeah. to get to where he wants to go. And, you yeah. know, respect to you if you really want something that bad. But, um, yeah, he doesn't give thoughts to other people's feelings and, or think of other people very highly. And so, yeah, I'm not a fan of him. Can I ask you a question? Does that answer you certainly the can. efficiently? Do you it does, it does. I'm very, very satisfied with that answer. I feel that I learned something. As well from you, so uh, thank you for that. Yeah, would you like uh, me to answer a question? I'm not going to say that you will learn something, um, but I'm, I'm happy to try. Well, after this question, we'll either um, still be friends or we're, we will not be friends anymore. Okay, episode one, it all hangs in the balance. So I'm I'm foreign in England, as you know. Oh, are you? I am. I don't know if you've picked up on that, but yes. <laughs> no, um, Adele no. is foreign. She is, yeah. Bertha Mason is foreign. Yeah. They don't come across particularly well. Um, Jane Eyre is actually very, when she's teaching Adele and Adele does any French things, she's like, I can't wait to just hammer all this French bullshit out of this girl. <laughs> and then at the end, when Adele is an older, she's like a young woman. And she's like, oh, she's, she's more English now and much better. <laughs> and yeah. So how do you think Bronte's <laughs> characterization of Adele and Bertha Mason reflect on her opinion of foreigners in general? Thank you so much for this question. Yeah, that's very nice of you. I think really, um, so if we start with Adele, obviously she's a little girl throughout the novel. Mm. I think that what possibly we have there is almost the, the funny kind of foreign character, you know? It's a little bit kind like of... Like a trope of... Um... Yeah, it's kind of like a little kind of sit sitcom kind of thing that we might have seen here in the 1970s probably not with someone from France probably from people from different places oh. but yeah it's all oh, look at the funny foreign girl possibly I think with Adele and that you know that is problematic and I think these days in the 21st century we see that as a as a bit of an issue possibly I think the depiction of Bertha Mason is very problematic myself she is obviously she's a creole so she's from the west mm -hmm. indies um she pretty much has no voice of her own in in the novel we don't get anything from her point of view we don't know to what extent she's been corralled into marrying mr rochester mm -hmm. um we don't really know what happened to her upbringing all we learn about her is from her husband, Mr. Rochester, and he yep. despises her yep. uh, and resents the fact that he's married to her uh, and treats her accordingly. And I don't think as readers that we're particularly encouraged either to have much sympathy for her. And I think that's kind of confirmed at the end in the way that she dies. Oh, she was mad all along. She tried to kill everybody and she jumped off the roof and mm -hmm. she's gone now. So we don't have to worry about her anymore. Jane, the true hero, can marry Mr. Rochester, um, her true love, and everyone can live you know, relatively happy ever after. 
I would be very interested in reading, is it The Wide Sargossa Sea by yeah. Dean Lewis, yeah. um, which I believe I haven't read, um, but I sort of learned a little bit about as we were sort of researching this episode, and that is told from the perspective of Bertha Mason. Cool. And uh, yeah. I'd be very interested in reading that, I think. Um, yeah. Jean Lewis seems like a very kind of interesting kind of woman as well. So I think in a future episode, I'd be quite, uh, well, very interested to kind of look into that a bit further. Wouldn't say any more about that now because um, you know my knowledge is not is not that great, to be honest with you. So I would say, yeah, that um, Charlotte Bronte's depiction of foreign people is somewhat problematic in the book. Oh. Um, as a counterpoint, her depiction of a lot of the English people is not that kind either. You're right, you know? yeah, yeah. As, as we've seen, you know, it's not as if all the English people in the book are seen as perfect perfect you know Jane Jane is quite near to being perfect in the way that she's presented I think mm-hmm. um, certainly the adult Jane but you know as, as we've seen the two major male figures in the novel aren't particularly wholesome no, a lot Mr. of Brock, the women Mr. Brocklehurst yeah a lot of the women Miss, Mrs. Fairfax seems very nice very pleasant um, Helen Burns know. is Helen Burns yes yeah, yeah. a so, lot of the women yeah. are considered very materialistic and not very um not having a lot of substance to their personalities which um mm. charlotte bronte obviously that was a you know something that she probably didn't like very much all right so i think what we're going to do now is we're going to do some fun questions aren't we about, mm, uh, yes. about the different characters in the novel mm-hmm. um Let's should go. i ask you first yeah go ahead so what i would like to know sienna yes. is from all the characters that we meet in the book in the book who, apart from Bertha Mason, I mm-hmm. think, because this is what happens to her, but who, apart from her, would you lock in an attic if you could? Who would I just keep locked in the attic? Uh, mm. Sinjin Rivers. I'd lock him in the attic. <laughs> and why is that? Fine. Because he's mean. And his whole, mm. I think, the idea of missionary work, I don't particularly agree with it anyway. So he's just going to India to try and convince people to reject their religion which is a crucial part of an identity of a culture and uh, yeah adopt christianity so i'm not really for that so i'd stop him from getting on with that and put him in the attic so stop him from getting on that boat to india yeah i wouldn't yeah they'll be fine and probably yeah. someone else will come and try and be a missionary anyway so but yeah i don't really yeah. like him so he can be there what about you who would you okay. lock in the attic uh, John Reed, I hate him. He's awful. That kid. So, yeah, the kid. Yeah. <laughs> he's awful. I don't like him. He's, he's, uh, you know, as a child, he's like he bullies Jane, who's like weaker than him. And when she, yeah. um, well, actually, she's not weaker because when when she stands up to him, he sort of goes running off crying to his mum and complains mm-hmm. about her. And it's yeah, no, don't like him at all. And then he grows up and he's kind of got no backbone, has he? And he becomes quite a dissolute kind of person in London. And, Yep, dies and dies. Um, so yeah, definitely him. I think out of all the people in the book, I mean, we meet some quite uh, troubling people in the book. But for for me, he's the one that I like the least. Yeah, he's pretty nasty. That kid. He's not nice. Yeah. Okay. Would you like to ask me a question then? Yeah. Um, so Gary, hmm. twenty thousand pounds. That's yeah. one point. How much million? One point. 1.7, I think. Yes, that sounds right. 1.7 million. Yeah. Who would you share an inheritance with? If you that dropped in your lap tomorrow, who would you share it with? 
outside of like, um, uh, I was going to say outside of your immediate family, but they're not in the book. I was th- I'm sorry. Sure. I was thinking of real life for a second. We're talking oh. about the character in the book. Who in the book? <laughs> I was going to say, I would have, I would have noticed if they'd have been in huh? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> okay, so you mean a character from the book. Who would I share my inheritance with? Can I choose any character or are you going to take a few away? Go share who, yeah, pick whoever you want. Um, I, I know who you're going to say, so I won't say that person. Um, maybe Mrs. Fairfax. Maybe she's, okay. I don't know. She's, um, like I said before, she seems quite a, a positive character. She's quite nice. She's quite loyal to Mr. Rochester. She seems to feel that he's a good master, even though he's a fairly troubling character in some ways. Um, mm-hmm. She treats Jane quite well, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, quite often I think in these books when the main character turns up in a big strange house, one of the conventions is to have quite a kind of scary governess that we don't we don't like and it um is quite sinister. But she's not like that at all, is she? She's quite warm and welcoming. Yeah. So uh, yeah. No. Um and she's had a life of service. I I feel that after a life of service maybe she deserves a little a little uh, to kick back. bonus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, relax a bit with uh, £10,000. Cool. What about you? Who would you share your inheritance with, as if I didn't know? Uh, do you know who I, pick, who I would pick? It's Grace, it's Grace Paul, isn't it? I was going to say her, but also I was going to say Adele. Because how much fun would Adele and I have running around <laughs> like... New York or London, just like, oh, look at all these things we can dress ourselves in and eat. Look at these little baguettes and uh, all the stuff we can do with it. Yeah, so it's, yeah, I just think Adele. But Grace Poole, she just, uh, I, I bet she's just scary looking. She'd be the one that, like, you go to the airport and, and she freaks the ticket desk person into upgrading to class and... Like getting free stuff all the time because she's so creepy looking. Ah, uh, yeah. So it's a hard choice. Probably Adele, though, because Adele's not. Yeah. I mean, she's just this. this oh, she's an orphan, basically. So probably her. Yeah, she's Yeah, I think you can imagine Grace Paul hitting the minibar pretty hard if he gets one. Yeah. She'd drink it all away. <laughs> yeah, you'd open the fridge and all those little packets of nuts would be open. Yeah. All the bottles would be empty. Like, oh, Grace again. Well, I would have, <laughs> do you know how much this stuff costs? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, I could have bought you a bottle. I could have bought you a bottle from the shop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what I would do then. If Adele, okay, for I, some reason, couldn't do it, then I'd pick Grace. Oh, We'd have a good time. I, We'd go to I Thailand or something. <laughs> what you and Grace Paul or you yeah. and Adele? Me and Grace Paul. I wouldn't take a child to Thailand. God, can you imagine? No, you have, have to keep an eye on her. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, you don't want to let your kid loose in Thailand. I think that's not. Okay, that's that's smart. something to remember. Yeah, I am picturing you and Adele though, like a little uh, shopping montage in Paris. Like Pretty Woman <laughs> with us. <laughs> Great. Or something like that. <gasps> yeah. Uh, <laughs> getting your hair done, getting your nails done. Now, um, if you could pick any character from this book to be your governess or child guardian. Mm. Who would you pick? Well, it's quite obvious, but probably Jane, I think. I mean, she sure. does prove herself to be a very good governess. Maybe 
having a, a little affair with the boss. But she doesn't even really have an affair, mm. does she? They just they just kind of get engaged straight away. Uh, yeah, she's, yeah. She seems very dedicated to doing a good job, you know. And uh, so I believe that yes, I would probably pick um, Jane. To, to cool. Be, sorry to be so boring. No, it's, a, it's fair. Uh, and who would you pick? Probably Mr. Rochester, because was well, a governess. Uh, as a guardian, as a guardian, I think yeah. uh, he, because he's got, he has money, so he could send you to school. Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, kind enough to like look after you. He has a nice big house, mm. so he's got the resources yeah. to take care of somebody. He at least, mm. uh, I know he doesn't give a kid, you know, he doesn't give Adele certainly that much like affection, but he does bring her presents and he does like look after her well enough and inquire about if she's happy. He does care about that. So I wouldn't mind leaving my kids with him, not forever. He definitely works hard to sort of ensure that Adele is looked after, doesn't he? That's why Jane's there in the first place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if he wanted a, a um, governess for for Adele and he didn't want anyone to be freaked out by Bertha Mason in the attic so that's why he instructed nobody to um, tell Jane about Bertha Mason in the attic. yeah yes so yeah are, are you okay. now arguing that his motives are good I is that not, what you're saying have I'm you, not doing change your mind no. no I think you know it's such an interesting complex situation you know we do contain mm. multitudes as people i think i feel that's that, not yeah that's cheese ball to say uh, no no that's definitely true yeah, i don't hate mr it, rochester but... i just think he's a bit of a scumbag yeah i don't hate him um, i'd no. pick him as my child guardian clearly i don't feel badly <laughs> uh should you're i going with the, you're going with the money with your choice aren't you? yes yes i am <laughs> Fair enough. Fair yeah enough. sorry <laughs> Shall I get into the um, end of Charlotte Bronte's biography? Can we wrap up? Yeah, go ahead. So yeah, tell us what happened to Charlotte after Jane Eyre was published. Right. So she wrote Jane Eyre in 1847. Instant hit. Everyone loved it. Yay. Mm -hmm. So the next year in 1848, she began work on her second published novel called Shirley. Mm -hmm. However, as she was writing the novel, her three siblings... Uh, Branwell, Emily, and Anne all died within the space of eight months. Yeah. Her sisters of tuberculosis and Branwell of bronchitis and marasmus. Yeah. He published her third novel, Villette, in 1853. Finally, no, The Professor was what she couldn't get published before. Villette was just a, another one. Yeah. She kept going with yeah. that, The Professor. I don't think it ever got published in her life. It got published after she died. Well, I believe, I think that Villette was kind of a rewriting of The Professor. Mm. She changed quite a few details in it, in it um, okay. but they're both set in Belgium to a large degree. A country okay. I believe you know quite well. I do. Um, you do. Um, and yeah, I think Villette was essentially a, re, a rewriting of The Professor. I mean, they're both available as separate novels now. Oh, thank you for that. A bit of context there. You're welcome. She married her father's curate, Arthur Bell Nichols, in June 1854. She became pregnant shortly after the wedding. However, her health quickly declined, and she died while still pregnant on March 31st, 1855, less than a month before her 39th birthday. Still quite young, but she sort of survived all her siblings, didn't she? Yeah, she did. And her dad, their dad outlived everybody. I'm just sad. Yeah, that's... 
that's the really the saddest part. Yeah, he had so many children, and he sort of managed to uh, yeah outlive them all. Yeah, his wife and all his kids. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's the that was the end of the Bronte children with Charlotte. There, she's the last one. Sienna, um, do you think you could sum up a final thought for Jane Eyre? Uh, um, if you could, what would that be? Okay. Yes, I can. Let me just rub my little hands together. Uh, prepare myself. I'm sure, the I'm sure the listeners are enjoying that, the I'm sound sure. of the friction between your hands. Exactly. I think a good takeaway from the book is that belief, religious belief um, in particular here, is something to help facilitate positive change and give a direction uh, or give a sense of direction rather than belief being an obsessive or domina dominating presence in someone's life. So the book has several examples of extremely pious people and they all represent different facets of Christianity in particular. Um, you have the severity and the hypocrisy of Mr. Brocklehurst, the crusading nature of St. John Rivers. You have Helen Burns, who is generous and kind and full of compassion for the adults who victimize and humiliate her. But Helen Burns rejects all earthly and material things because she doesn't see them as valuable compared to what awaits her in heaven. So Jane turns away from all of these views. So the book is as anti-Catholic as everybody thought at the time? No. Oh, Obviously. Silly me. Silly you. Jane just uses religion to help her make decisions and keep herself true to her convictions, which is a good thing. See? Uh, it isn't mm. something to devote all her life to because she sees the impracticality of living that way in the real world. So she can't reconcile it. And deep down, what she knows will make her happy are tangible things like a real home, a job in which she feels fulfilled, a family, and later on, love. So this is reflected in her choice of Mr. Rochester at the end of the book, which leads us to our ending quote. Gary, <laughs> you do the honors. Yeah. So we're now going to finish with a little quote from the book. So um, this is right at the end. So Jane says, I have now been married 10 years. I know what it is to live entirely for and with what I love best on earth. I hold myself supremely blessed, blessed beyond what language can express, because I am my husband's life as fully as he is mine. All my confidence is bestowed on him. All his confidence is devoted to me. We are precisely suited in character. Perfect concord is the result. Okay. And true love, true love yeah. is, and I think true love is a good point in which we should finish this episode. What do you say? I say yes. Thank you. Okay, so thank you to everybody that has made it this far through the episode, and we hope that you will join us next time where we're going to look at another novel by one of the Bronte sisters. And what's that going to be, Sienna? Do you want to do a big reveal for us? We're going to be talking about The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Indeed, and uh, I think we're both very excited to get into that. I love it. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. It's a great book. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really good. Really underrated novel. Okay, so we do hope that you'll join us for that. And it's goodbye from me and... Goodbye from me. Thanks for listening and see you uh, for episode two.